0: All right, this morning we're going to be looking at the most famous Old Testament miracle. We're going to be examining the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, this Old Testament miracle is really equivalent to the New Testament miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as we look at Jesus Christ in the parting of the Red Sea we're going to be seeing another aspect of Christ. We've seen him as our Passover. We saw him as the great I am. We saw him as the redeemer. And we saw him also as the pillar of cloud and smoke and fire. But this time we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ as the God glorifying God. And I hope before we're done, that title will make sense to you. Christ the God-glorifying God. And so we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 14, the entire chapter. So as we get into this study, let's go ahead and let's just read the chapter. Exodus 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of baal Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took six hundred select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea, beside Pihahiroth, in front of baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came about, between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, that there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, And he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. Now you will recall that God had brought ten great plagues on the nation of Egypt. This was his way of convincing Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go free. And the final plague was the worst of all. In this plague, God himself went through the land of Egypt and struck down. He actually killed all the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt who did not have the blood of the Passover lamb smeared across the door top. And so once that had taken place, Pharaoh called for Moses and he said, Moses, get out of here, leave now before we're all killed. And so that very night, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Well, they eventually got to the very edge of Egypt where the wilderness began, and they had no idea where to go from there. They'd never, they'd never been any further than that distance. And so it was at that point that God began to lead them through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And in chapter 14, verse 2, God gives some very specific instructions about where he wants the Israelites to camp. He says, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihairoth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. Now this really is kind of crazy. What God is about to do is he's going to set a trap for the Egyptians. And he's going to use the Israelites as his bait to lure the Egyptians into this trap so that he can destroy them. Now, why does God want Israel to camp out here by the sea? They've got the sea in front of them. On either side of them, they've got these mountain ranges of wilderness. And then leading up to them is this big pathway that the Egyptians are going to be marching down why in the world would God want them to camp there? It would seem like they're sitting ducks in that position. There's nowhere they can run, no place they can hide. And that's exactly the point. Notice what God says in verse 3. For, that connects us to verse 2, this is why I want you to camp there. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. That's why, because I want Pharaoh to think that you're shut in, that you're wandering aimlessly, that you've got no place you can go. And then he will come in order to take you captive and bring you back to Egypt. Now, modern Christianity, I think, is dumbfounded at at the idea of what we see here. We think, Well, the the people that love God and want to serve God, well, those are the kind of people God wants to protect and he wants to bless them and he wants to show love to them. Well, in this circumstance, God is actually terrifying them. God is putting them into such a frightful situation that they are terrified. And he's doing it on purpose. (laughs) We don't really have any categories for that kind of a God. But my friends, this is the God of the Bible. This is the true and living God. Now notice, verse 4. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh had a change of heart. He had a change of mind. Remember, the Israelites number between two and three million people. And all of these people are free. Uh, Pharaoh had, had received free slave labor from them. And now they're gone. And remember also that their land has been devastated. The locusts have come in and they've eaten everything. The livestock are dead. Egypt has been ravaged. And now the Egyptians have to rebuild their nation. How in the world are they going to rebuild their nation without any free slave labor? Also remember that before the Israelites left, they asked their neighbors to give them some articles of silver and gold. And the Egyptians did so. And even if the Egyptians only gave a little bit of silver and gold to each family, let's say worth $100 today, there there was enough Israelites so that the total sum of money given to them would have equaled $60 million. The Egyptians needed that money. They needed that silver and gold to rebuild their nation. And so Pharaoh's thinking, I've been a stupid idiot. What have I done? I've let all these slaves go free. And now look, They're trapped. They're hemmed in. This is a perfect situation for me to go and put them in bonds and bring them back again, make them slaves all over again. Now, Egypt had the most powerful army on the face of the earth. And the Hebrews were not soldiers. Remember, they were slaves. They were untrained in war. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't have swords or spears or bows and arrows. They were just sitting ducks for anyone like Pharaoh and his army that wanted to come in and take them captive again. Now try to imagine this scene. The Israelites way off in the distance heard a rumbling sound. Then no idea what it was, but they're hearing this rumbling sound. It's actually the rumbling of horses hooves and way off in the distance they see this billowing cloud of dust going up from the earth and they hear shouts. The billowing cloud of dust is the dust that is surfacing because of this marching army and the shouts are soldiers shouting as they're heading into war. They see the glint of the sun on some shields and swords and then they see these chariots racing toward them. And at that point, I imagine mothers are screaming They're clutching their little babies to their bosom. The men are railing on Moses. They're saying, what in the world have you done? Did you bring us out here because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt? It would have been better off for us for just to be left in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? And in all of this, we see God doing two strange things. At least they're strange by our standards today when We view things through our modern evangelical Christian lenses. Number one, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He says that in verse four. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God was softening Pharaoh's heart. We think God doesn't harden hearts. God softened hearts. God opens hearts. God changes hearts. God doesn't harden hearts. Well, according to the book of Exodus chapter 14, God hardens hearts. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is giving his commentary on this situation over in Romans chapter 9, listen to what he says in verse 18. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Well, so much for God loves everyone exactly the same and he's doing everything he can to save everyone. Uh, no, not in the case of Pharaoh. God is not trying to save Pharaoh. God is trying to destroy Pharaoh and his army. And he's not just trying, he's actually going to accomplish that. Now, we need to remember that God is not changing Pharaoh's heart from a soft heart into a hard heart. Pharaoh's heart is already evil. It's already proud and obstinate. It's already hard toward God. All God is doing is just confirming Pharaoh in his hard heart, and he's making it a little bit harder. It's already hard. I did a study. I took a look through the book of Exodus, and I looked at this phrase, Hardened his heart. Because I wanted to see how that works. Who's hardening whose heart? Now, two times, well, let me back up. Five times, the Bible says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, in those instances, we don't know who did the hardening because the Bible doesn't say. It just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh could have been hardening his own heart or the Lord could have been hardening Pharaoh's heart. We're not told. But in the other 13 instances, two times the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Eleven times the Bible says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So really the emphasis in the book of Exodus when we read about Pharaoh having a hardened heart is that the Lord is the one doing the hardening. Now, Pharaoh also is participating and he's hardening his own heart, but the Lord stands behind all of that in his sovereign providence. And the Lord Sovereignly, it is hardening Pharaoh's heart because he wants Pharaoh to do something that will actually bring the Lord glory and honor. Now, that was the first strange thing. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The second strange thing is that the Lord terrified his own people. Like in chapter 14, verse 10, it says, as Pharaoh drew near, The sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. And I would too, wouldn't you? You have no weapons. You have no soldiers. Here is the most mighty military army on the face of the earth coming after you, trained men in battle with chariots and spears and shields and swords. It would be a terrifying situation. We think if someone's serving God, God would never do anything to bring about suffering or fear to their life. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? God is deliberately bringing a situation upon the Israelites that is going to cause them great fear. You say, wait a minute, that's not my God. My God would never do something like that. Well, if that's true, then you do not know the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible did do something like that. You know, you and I, if, if if we have a wrong God, a God who's not the God of the Bible, we better get rid of that concept of God as soon as we possibly can, because we're worshiping a false God. We need to worship the true and living God, the God of Scripture. Now, my question to you this morning is, why did God do all this? Why did God set a mouse trap and use his own people as cheese? I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons. Number one, to demonstrate his power. God did all of this, set the Israelites up, used them as bait to draw in the Egyptians because he wanted to demonstrate his power. And I get that from Romans 9.17. Here in Romans 9.17, the Apostle Paul is giving his commentary on this whole situation. And I want you to listen to what Paul says about it. Romans 9.17 For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God wanted to demonstrate his power. Think about the power that would be necessary to open up the Red Sea so that two to three million people could march through in a single night. You know, when I think about the parting of the Red Sea, I think about God opening up a path maybe 10 or 20 feet wide. But, you know, it would be impossible to get that many people through a path that small in the space of one night. We're probably talking about a path at least a half a mile wide in order for them to all get through. And then think, it says in Exodus fourteen twenty-two. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The waters are like a wall. The Lord swept this east wind in and that east wind dried up the seabed and it lifted up the walls of water on either side. Those walls of water are probably hundreds of feet high. And it's interesting to me that the same east wind that dried the seabed and lifted up those walls of water didn't blow the sons of Israel down. It didn't, it wasn't like a hurricane lifting them out of the way. It, it did no harm to them, but it did lift up those walls of water so that they could get through. This was incredible power that God is demonstrating. And I want you to see here, that the very same power that God used to deliver the Hebrews, he also used to destroy the Egyptians. God wanted to demonstrate his power both to save and to destroy. You see, God had already decided who he was going to save and who he was going to destroy. He'd already decided he was going to save the Hebrews and he was going to destroy the Egyptians. And you might get the idea, well, God saved the Hebrews because they were righteous and he destroyed the Egyptians because they were evil. But my friends, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The Hebrews were not righteous. The Hebrews were sinful, as we're going to find out as we keep reading through this book. They murmur, they complain, they get down and they worship a golden calf. They forsake the Lord. No, these Hebrews are not righteous. They're sinful just like the Egyptians. So why did God save the Hebrews and destroy the Egyptians? Because it suited his purposes to do so. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and raised him up because he wanted an occasion to display his awesome power to his creatures. You see, God's glory is when God puts his attributes on display. And one of those attributes is his omnipotence, his mighty power. And God loves to display his glory. He loves to display his attributes. And so he raised up Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He caused Pharaoh and the Egyptians to race after the Israelites because God wanted to show his power, both to save and to destroy. Second reason, why did God set this mousetrap and use his people as bait? Second reason, to spread his fame. To spread his fame. In Exodus 9, 17, second part of that verse, God says, And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God did what he did because he wanted his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And we find that that's exactly what happened. Forty years after the parting of the Red Sea, Joshua sends two spies into a city called Jericho. When they get to Jericho, they meet a woman called Rahab who hides them. And she has something very interesting to tell them. I'm going to read it to you. This is Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. This is what... Rahab says, Now before they laid down she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This pagan land was still in awe of God 40 years after the parting of the Red Sea. Their hearts melted within them when they heard that the Israelites were coming their way because they knew what this God of the Hebrews was capable of doing God had caused his name to be spread throughout the whole earth back in Exodus 14 verse 4 it says thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord that's what God was after He wanted the Egyptians to know that he was the Lord. See, the Egyptians had all kinds of gods and goddesses for just about everything. They had a god of the Nile River. They had a goddess of the frogs. They had a god of the sun. And it's interesting to me that even though they had a god of the Nile River, that god couldn't keep the Nile River from turning to blood. And though they had the goddess of frogs, that goddess couldn't keep these frogs from coming up out of the Nile and going into every home and into every kneading bowl. And though they had a god of the sun, that god couldn't keep the sun from being darkened because the Lord Jehovah, the true and living God, the creator, wanted to show that he was the Lord and that all these others were false gods and just idols. So God is wanting not only to demonstrate his power, but he's also wanting to spread his fame. I want to show you just a bunch of verses that demonstrate this fact. You, perhaps you've never seen this in scripture, but if you just read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will see a silver thread. And in this thread, you're going to see God's purpose for doing everything that he does, God does everything for His own sake, for His namesake, to display His own glory. So let's take a trip through the Bible. 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself why did god not abandon his people it was on account of his great name that's why he didn't abandon them it wasn't for their sake it was for his name's sake that he did that or we could go to second samuel chapter 7 and look at verse 23 And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. Why did God redeem for himself a people? It was to make a name for himself, to do a great thing for himself, That's why God did it. He was making a name. He was spreading his fame. Let's take a look at Psalm 23, that very famous psalm that everybody has memorized by now. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Well, take a look at one of the lines in this psalm. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. (laughs) That's why he passed or guides you and me in the paths of righteousness is for his sake. Or let's turn to Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does God wipe out our transgressions? The Bible says it's for his own sake. His own sake. What about Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11? For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and and my glory I will not give to another? All the way through this passage, God is emphasizing, it's not for your sake, it was for my own sake. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. How can my name be profaned? God will not allow his name to be profaned. And drugged through the mud, but instead he will exalt his holy name. Or let's look at Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 14. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Or how about Ezekiel 36? Verse 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Again and again and again, God emphasizes that what he does, he does for his namesake. That is to spread his fame, to exalt himself before his creatures. Well, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's take a look at John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The passion of Jesus' heart was that his Father would be glorified, that his name would be glorified. And God says, that's my passion too. I've already glorified my name and I'm going to glorify it again. God is absolutely committed to his own glory. You see, God is God-centered. God is not man-centered. If you want God, to hold you in the center of his universe, I'm sorry, you're going to be sadly mistaken. You're going to be very disappointed because you are not the center of God's universe. God is the center of God's universe. God loves his glory. He won't give it to another. He loves the glory of his name. He loves to spread his fame. Our God is a God-centered God. Well, let's turn to one more. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. My friends, why did God forgive your sins? 1 John 2.12 tells us it was for His namesake that He did that. For His namesake. For His namesake. So God did what He did with the children of Israel by bringing them to the Red Sea where they were trapped and hemmed in to demonstrate His power and to spread His fame. Thirdly, He did it to reveal His glory. Look at Exodus 14.4 again. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. God says, I will be honored through Pharaoh. God is honored when he reveals the glory of his power. And God revealed the glory of his power in two ways number one, to save the Hebrews, number two, to destroy the Egyptians. God revealed his glory in the salvation of the Hebrews. How do I know that? Because in Exodus 14.31, we're given the results of what happened when God saved them. It says, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Two results. They feared God and they believed in God. And whenever anybody fears God and believes in him, God is glorified. God is glorified. So God was glorified in the salvation of the Hebrews. But he was also glorified in the destruction of the Egyptians. He said as much. He said that he will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. Well, Pharaoh and all his army are going to be killed. They're going to be drowned in the bottom of the Red Sea. But God said that he would be honored through that act. Now, that's harder for us to understand. Let's just be honest. We understand how God can be glorified when he saves someone. But this passage is telling us that he's glorified when he destroys somebody. In both cases, God is honored. Now, let's go back over to Romans 9 again to see... How Paul shed some light on this for us. Romans chapter 9 verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory now think about this verse 22 what if god although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known that word willing means wanting god wanted to demonstrate his wrath god wanted to make his power known why because that brings him honor and glory that puts his attributes on display that reveals who he is to his creation God wants to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known. You say, Brian, why would God want to demonstrate His wrath? I thought God didn't want to demonstrate His wrath. Well, this verse, verse Romans 9.22, says He does. We think God would never want to demonstrate His wrath because there's something wrong with wrath. There's only something wrong with wrath if our wrath is coming about because of sin, because of our own sin. We get angry at somebody because they don't treat us the way we think we ought to be treated. We're proud, and when somebody else humbles us, that makes us mad. But when God demonstrates wrath, there is no unrighteousness mixed with it. It's a holy wrath. It's pure wrath. It's anger against evil. It's holy anger against sin. And so God can want to demonstrate his wrath because it is part of who he is. It's part of his holy character. Now why did God, although he wanted to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, why did he endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why did he do that? Why didn't he just pour out his wrath upon these vessels of wrath? Because if God did that, he would end up destroying his own people in addition to all of the enemies of god so he endured with much patience these vessels of wrath and he's enduring them now he's allowing them to go on in their sin he's not bringing about their destruction immediately but one day he will when christ returns god will demonstrate his wrath god will make his power known he will not endure any longer with these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Right now he's doing that because of verse 23. Verse 23 says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God wants to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, that is, before the foundation of the world. He decided to show his mercy on his elect and to bring them to glory. Now notice that God is getting glory not only from these vessels of mercy, but from the vessels of wrath. God will receive glory when he pours out his wrath and power upon vessels of wrath. And God will receive glory when he pours out his mercy upon his elect and brings them to glory. God will get glory both in saving and in destroying, both in taking some to heaven and in destroying others in hell. God will be glorified because he will demonstrate the perfections of his character. Now, let's draw all of this down to a conclusion. My friend, are you in a similar situation this morning as the Israelites were? Do you feel shut in? Hemmed in, trapped like you're in an impossible situation with no way out. Here are the Egyptians coming at you and you have no weapons and they are going to overpower you and take you back as slaves. Do you look at your life and say, I'm in a bad marriage. I'm married to someone that I can't get along with. There's just constant friction and fighting And it looks like it's never going to change. I'm hemmed in. I'm trapped. I'm shut in. Or maybe one of you says, no, for me, it's an unreasonable parent. I've got parents that just don't understand. They won't let me do what I ought to be able to do. There's no way out of this situation. I'm just trapped. Or maybe you feel trapped by financial poverty. Maybe you just never have enough money to make ends meet. You're just barely scraping by. You're going more and more in debt. There's nothing you can do to change it. You're trapped. Or maybe you have an illness. Maybe you've just found out that you have cancer and it's not going away. And beyond all these things, you understand that because God is sovereign, God has brought these things into your life. He's either permitted them Or he has ordained them for you. Now, why would God permit or ordain things like a bad marriage or unreasonable parents or financial poverty or cancer? Because he wants to demonstrate his power, he wants to spread his fame, and he wants to reveal his glory. You say, wait a minute, Brian, I, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that God might do these things in my life to spread his fame or demonstrate his power or reveal his glory, uh, that's not right. That's not fair. That seems downright wrong. God shouldn't do that. You don't like that? I'm sorry, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. When you create your universe, you can make the rules. But until then, you better bow in the dust and put your hand over your mouth. I really think one of the greatest differences between a saved person and a lost person is that a saved person loves God for who he is. He delights in God for who he is, and he wants his life to bring glory to God even if it means trials and pain and suffering and fear. My friend, are you willing to face pain or fear or difficulties if it will only bring God glory, if it'll demonstrate his power and spread his fame and reveal his glory. The lost person hates God. Now he'd never admit that. But if you get to the bottom of his heart, there's a hatred for God. He wants to glorify himself, not God. And he's repulsed at the idea that God would bring him into situations of pain in order to glorify himself. In Exodus 14, God deliberately boxed his people in to reveal his glory. Are you willing to experience pain or fear if it will glorify God? The saved person wants to glorify God more than anything in his life because he loves God. He trusts God. He understands that we only see a tiny sliver of all that is going on. God sees it all. And if God allows or ordains me to go through these difficult, painful situations, God has a good reason for it. Because I trust Him. I know that He's good. I know that He is love. And I trust Him. Now, the question that arises, it arises in my mind is, well, how can we glorify God when we face these terrifying situations? How can we do that? We do it by showing that we believe Jesus is better than health. He's better than our comfort. He's better than riches. He's better even than life. Let's take the situation of cancer. You've been diagnosed with cancer. That cancer has not been healed. It doesn't appear like God is going to heal. It's not going away. How do you glorify God in that situation? Well, you don't blame God. You don't impugn God's character. Instead, you witness to God's greatness to the people around you. Whenever there's an opportunity, you tell them of the good things God has done for your soul. You tell them how he saved you from sin, how he's taking you to be with him forever. You witness to his greatness, to the doctors, to the nurses, to the other patients. And then when it comes time to die, You show that dying is gain. It's far better than to remain here. You show that Jesus is better than life. What about if you're facing bankruptcy? You lost your business. You're losing your home. How can you glorify God in that? Will you show everybody around you that you still find your joy in God and you find him better than any wealth that you've ever experienced. Even though you have no earthly wealth, you still have the greatest treasures because you have Jesus Christ. And you tell them, you show by your life that you're still joyful, you're still happy in Jesus Christ. What about if you're in a difficult marriage? How can you glorify God there? Well, find joy in Christ. Find your satisfaction in Him, in prayer and in His Word. And then continue to share God's love with your spouse. Continue to serve your spouse. Do kind things for your spouse. Let God use you to glorify His name. If you cooperate with Him, it will go well with you. If you resist Him, He's still going to glorify His name but it's going to go bad for you. Let me close with Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted Him, that is Christ, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some people will not willingly bow and they will not willingly confess, but they will be made to bow and they will be made to confess on that final day. And then they'll be cast into hell. But you know what? God will still be glorified by their damnation and their destruction, just as he will be glorified by the saints' willingness to bow and to confess Jesus as Lord right now. Have you surrendered to God? Are you living for his glory? If that's so, then all the riches of heaven are yours. But if you resist God and you live for your own glory, All the torments of hell are yours. What will you choose today, my friend? What will you choose? Lord, I pray that you would use this message in the lives of many people. I pray, Father, that we would see the God-centeredness of our great God, that we'd come to understand the beauty of his perfections and that it is the only righteous thing for him to put those beautiful perfections on display that his creatures might enjoy them and enjoy him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.